Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of the Si Fuera Una Cancion podcast. My name is David Castaneda, music researcher and your host today. You may recognize my voice if you've been listening to our podcast. I'm the one that's always discussing amazing songs and stories that our interviewees have shared with Elizabeth, who's still here today. Right, Elizabeth? I'm right here, ready to go. So Elizabeth, why don't you give us a little bit of background on how this episode came to be? It's going to be different than our usual format, but I think our listeners are going to really enjoy it. So... Today, we will not be doing our usual deep dive into a couple of songs chosen by a single person from the community. Instead, we're using a list of songs that was generated by a whole bunch of community members during an outdoor event a couple of months ago. Laura Diaz, who is our graphic designer, Deaneira Garcia, who is our project assistant, and I were tabling for Cio Fuera at El Mercadito, which is a community marketplace where local folks come together on the second Saturday of every month to sell produce and crafts and delicious homemade food. And Day had the genius idea to set up an easel with paper and invite people to write down what song they would be that day if they were just one song. And we got the most amazing list. What an amazing idea. Awesome. So what we've done is taken these songs, our community songs, and are going to delve into just some of them. As it turns out, each one of these songs has had a long, long history that spans many different nations, cultures, and musical genres. It was fascinating for me to research each of these pieces, and I'm so excited to share all of this with our listeners. We'll be doing so in the form of small, small conversations with select members of our team here at Si Yo Fuera Una Cancion. In addition to being a way for our listeners to get to know more of our team, we'll hear the many different ways in which these amazing songs resonate with each team member. Some have never heard these songs before, and others have grown up with them. I think it really made exploring these compositions fascinating. What do you think, Elizabeth? Well, David, what I found fascinating and compelling about this community-generated list was that many, most of the songs, were really old. The oldest one, La Paloma, that I, I think you're going to talk about it later today, it goes back over 150 years. And many of them came from the earlier part of the 1900s. And I think this says something really interesting about the community members who stepped up to say what song represented them that day at Mercadito. Most of those people were middle-aged. I, I would say they were 40 and over, and a couple of them were really old. And I think this speaks to the sense of history that is very active in those generations of immigrant folk, an awareness of how they represent certain traditions and a desire to keep those traditions alive and sounding out loud and proud in the world. Great. So on to the songs. The original list of songs that was shared with us comprised of about nine compositions. Of these nine, I chose three to include in this special episode. Among many factors, the most important was the rich histories that each of these three compositions have. The songs are, one, La Paloma, two, El Coco, and three, Perfume de Gardenias. As a way to illustrate the many ways that artists have interpreted these compositions, I'll be presenting snippets of three versions of each composition and discussing them with a Si Yo Fuera Una Cancion team member. Along with hearing their reflections and reactions to the compositions, I'll also be sharing how each composition has changed over the years and have become as influential as they have across the globe. We'll be making all of the music that we touch on, as well as the music shared with us on the original community songs list, available for you all to explore via Spotify as a playlist that you can access as soon as the episode goes live. We'll have a link to that playlist in our episode page. How's that sound to you, Elizabeth? Sounds like a plan. I think it will be really interesting to hear how our team members, all of whom are much younger than the community members who offered these songs in the first place, how our team members hear and react to this music. Because in the end, music, like culture, only lives if it's heard and shared. Yes. Elizabeth, you'll be joining us at the end of the episode, right? I'm looking forward to hearing your own reactions to all of this music and to the great conversations that they're going to inspire. I'll be here. I'll be here, and I'm looking forward to sharing our impressions of how this multi-generational, multi-century encounter has worked out. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed researching it and putting it together. I think it really speaks to the beautiful complexity that art, just like the people who make it, can have. Well, let's get into it. Our first song is La Paloma with Wes McClintock, one of our sound engineers. Okay, Wes, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. This is cool. 
So you specifically wanted to talk about this next composition, which is La Paloma. Can you give us an explanation as to why? Uh, well, I listened to both the versions that you had up, and um, I, I really think I've heard that uh, the instrumental piano version before, and it, it brought back memories, and I think maybe my, my parents played it when I was a kid. It, it just brought back memories of uh, my home when I was a kid. And I was just like, well, maybe this is the same song that I'm having this reaction to. So I thought, I thought you could, uh, I'd learned something and I'm not sure if it is the song. It just really feels familiar to me. Well, it, it might be because this song is pretty much well known for being perhaps the most recorded Spanish song, quote unquote, Spanish song or song in Spanish ever. It, uh, it was written in 1860 by a Spanish composer by the name of Sebastian Iradier. He visited Cuba and he wrote this song as a habanera. So in the 1800s, uh, this contra dance started to develop on the island. Contra dance is kind of like a salon music from Europe. During the colonial era, they brought these contra dances, the Europeans, the Spanish, uh, to the New World, to the Spanish colonies. And in Cuba, the musicians started mixing it with Afro-Cuban music, African musical influences, folkloric musics, and we started to get this very characteristic habanera rhythm. Bum, bum, bing, bum, 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 bing, bum, bum, this kind of thing, which is very, very popular now. But this was one of the first songs that was recognized worldwide with this rhythm, this habanera rhythm. This one song La Paloma would become super popular not only in Latin America, but also the United States, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, everywhere. There's so many, so many hundreds of different versions of this song. So it, it very well might be the song that you grew up with because it's everywhere. It's been everywhere for a long, 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 long time. So we're going to be listening to three different versions of this song. And maybe by the end, you can give us a definitive answer uh, if this is the one you remember. Wow. Okay, cool. That sounds great. So this first version is going to be what can be called a piano reduction, right? So the full composition, maybe it includes strings, maybe it includes voice. But what this one arranger did was create a version just for piano. So I wanted to make sure to start with this one so we can have a very clear idea of what the melody is and how the, the accompaniment sounds and that very characteristic bass line bump 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 so let's listen for that this is la paloma Wow. Okay, so I know that you're a musician. Uh, so what do you think just listening to this song? First off, I love piano. Um, and just straight piano songs always get me just because I just love the sound of that instrument. But um, there's just such a nice, it's just such a nice vibe to this song. Like that bass line that's kind of continuous and the lead, the, the melody, it, it's just really easy to listen to. And it's just, there's something kind of comforting about it. Yeah. You know, you know what, what I like about this composition too, is, is it speaks so much to the art of melody writing, right? So there's, there's such a thing as being able to write a melody that not only is very singable, but it's also just pleasant on the ear, which is very difficult, right? If you think about writing stories or literature or anything, there has to be a particular way of thinking where you can make sure that your message is being accessed by those who are in, uh, consuming it. The same thing is true for music. So how can you write a song with a complete musical thought in a way that's going to be able to be accessed by people who perhaps don't have the same musical background as you or going to have many, many, many different musical backgrounds? This song does that beautifully. I mean, in, in my opinion, another person who just is amazing at this, was amazing, I should say, was Antonio Carlos Jobim. He would write amazing melodies with amazing harmony, which is the 
a combination of different notes to create different moods, right? We musicians call chords and you can manipulate this to create different emotions in the listener with melody lines that are very, very recognizable. Um, in the American kind of canon, I mean, Burt Baccarat, Elton John as well. So there's an art to be able to write music like this and to think that Iradier was writing this in 1860 is just kind of mind boggling, you know? Yeah. Oh, totally. And it's just, there's something so human about the way it's, I mean, obviously it's human, but the, just the sway of it just feels so comforting, almost like you're being rocked in a crib or something. Yeah. Like a lullaby. Yeah. I just, I just like that. I like the vibe. Okay. So now we're going to hear this same song. So what I mean by song is the melody, like the main meat and potatoes of the composition, the melody and the accompaniment. Now we're going to hear this expanded to more of what can be thought of as being in kind of like an operatic vein. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this next version is we're going to listen to Elvira de Hidalgo. She was a Spanish opera singer and later vocal coach. Now, she served as coach for perhaps one of the most well-known opera singers of the 20th century, and that's Maria Callas. Maria Callas was an American-born Greek uh, singer. She was of Greek descent. She received her musical training in Greece and went on to be one of the most influential opera singers in the world. So Elvira was the one who was coaching her. And Elvira is the one who's going to sing this version in Greek. The same song, but in Greek, in an operatic vein. So let's take a listen. Okay, so there we heard a little bit of an operatic version, so much wider voice. Well, there's voice, number one. The, other, the first version didn't have voice, but this style of singing is much wider, big, 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 huge voice. There's violins. What do you think? Oh, it's pretty cool to hear such a different version. Um, yeah, it's like you can clearly tell it's the same song, but at the same time, I don't know if you might not connect the dots because it sounds different at the same time. It's interesting, and I, I think it really suited what she did to it. It sounded really cool, like a really good version. Yeah, so in this in this communal songs episode, this community songs episode that we have here, we've been kind of playing around with this idea of a song kind of becoming more than what it started as. It starts as one thing, and then musicians take it and add things from their own lived experiences, right? So this is obviously an operatic version, that's been expanded to reflect that operatic background uh, and function. But it started mainly as one of these very slow piano pieces that we first kind of interpreted almost as a lullaby. And now this one has way more energy. It's much bigger. And the next version that we're going to hear is going to be even more different. So this is one of the beautiful things about music. And Wes, you brought up such a good point about things being human. You know, it's that music for me is part of the beauty of the art of music is that it's very human, meaning that by nature, it's mostly chaotic, right? Like you can't really predict what people are going to do with music. It's kind of just you watching and appreciating what happens within that medium, because people are always going to put things that they know into it, and it's going to change and morph into something else and something great and not so great and something that hits you and doesn't hit you, but it hits the other person very deeply. It's all of this beautiful chaos that for me is just so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's just incredible, like you said, to to see a song evolve in a way, like, and just someone add something new to it that brings a new life to it. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say, too, is this is another example of something starting in one place. Let's say, you know, like a Iradier was in a visit to Cuba, and he wrote in the Havana, the Habanera version. But it's become something that, you know, it's kind of something of the world now. You can't even really call this like Latin music or whatever. It's just something of the world. It belongs to so many different places and people now. It's kind of like a human song. You know, it's more so than, uh, you know, we can say like a Latin composition or an Iberian composition, if you want to say. It's 
so many people know this song so many people can sing the melody as so many people grew up with this song and didn't even know they were listening to it it's you know it's all of ours i would say but it's all of ours you know so do you know how it got to reach so many people so quickly was it just such a unique song it just blew the world away so it was written in the 1860s Iradier would pass before he would see the popularity of the song. So from my research, I was able to kind of gather that even though it was written on a trip to Cuba and he's from Spain, it became very popular in Mexico, especially in the first half of the 20th century. Now, in this time, there was a lot of, and especially in Mexico City, there was a lot of movement and development in terms of multimedia and mass media, radio, movies, they had their boom, the Mexican golden age of cinema, happened in really the first half of the 20th century. And I think this is what allowed this song, which as we both have talked about so far, very accessible, very easy on the ears, almost ambiguous, right? Like there's there's a little bit of rhythm, which makes it entice, like it, it it's very inviting because of that rhythm, but at the same time, it isn't too, let's say scandalous, right? Like it's not like a uh, I don't know, a banger, as, as people would say today, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's accessible, easy on the ear. And I think it was one of these songs that just had this ability to be easily enjoyed by multiple audiences. And musicians saw this. Mm-hmm. So they took it. And from Mexico, it went out towards the world. And once it went that way, everyone started kind of piggybacking on it and creating different versions and now it's something that's popular everywhere. It's very much part of the, I don't know, you could say musical artistic zeitgeist, if we know it or not, you know. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's just a very inviting song. So I guess it just pleased everybody. Mm-hmm. I think the Beatles is uh, one of the only other acts and songs of the Beatles are the only other compositions that are recorded as much as this one, which kind of makes sense. You know, a lot of the Beatles music is very accessible. I have my own opinions, but that's not for this episode. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> controversy. Oh, wow. <laughs> controversy. Yes, okay. No controversy on Cio Fuera. No, no, no. No, no, no. We'll do <laughs> we'll do a special anti-Beatles Christmas episode. And, uh... Hey, man. Hey, I'm not saying anti-Beatles. I'm joking. Hey, I'm man. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's listen to this last version, which is, for me, such a special version because I grew up with this next type of music. So this type of music is uh in my household they called it trio which means three in spanish it's also called trio romantico which is it describes uh an orchestration that is founded on really three voices and those musicians that are singing are also playing instruments typically there's like a guitarron a normal six string and then some kind of requinto and they sing a type of music called boleros. Boleros, as we've talked about before in this in this episode, had their substantial start, really, in Cuba. The, the boleros um, that we know today started in Cuba. It, there's different types of bolero, but the ballads that we understand today started in Cuba. They were listening to crooners, and they infused all of this kind of North American influence into these Spanish songs, these Latin American songs, Cuban songs. And then that genre became very popular in places like Mexico as well, but quickly all over Latin America. So pretty much anywhere in Latin America, people would be very familiar with ballads, as we would say in English, but boleros. And this specific style of interpreting boleros is called trio or trio romantico. The band is Los Panchos, which is one of the most well-known trios. Uh, Los Aces, Los Diamantes, or some others. Um, But here is La Paloma, as sung by Los Panchos. Cuando salí de La Habana, valgame Dios. Nadie Okay, Wes, what'd you think? You know, it's, it's so interesting about that version is that it almost takes you a, a minute to realize it's the same tune. Like the, the uh, I found the other version to be 
a lot closer to the original, even though like this clearly is the same song with the bass line, but they, they do these breaks and where the guitar just kind of stops and rings out. And uh, the first time I heard it, I, I had to kind of switch between the two to see if it actually was the same song. They just totally made it their own. Right. Ex- exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I that's another version. I, I really like it. And it's like, it's in a weird way, it's kind of hard to believe that's the same song because it sounds so different. Right, right. Well, what's funny about this one, too, is we can really hear. So there's some kind of bass instrument. I can't tell if it's some kind of guitarron. Guitarron is, uh, they use this instrument in mariachi music. It has this beautiful, warm, round sound. Really, really round sound. And we can hear that in this recording. It could also be an upright bass played excellently because (laughs) usually there's a little bit more treble especially that high but whatever it is we can hear the rhythm of the habanera in this version just like we heard in the first version that we heard which was the piano reduction but the interesting thing is that habanera rhythm would essentially become the base or one of the foundation the foundational pillars for a lot of the music that we know today as salsa Son Montuno, a lot of that, we can hear those remnants in, the, of, in this music. It was one of the predecessors to a lot of this Cuban music that became popular worldwide as well. And this song uses a lot of that in this genre called Bolero. And one of the things Los Panchos does, or one of the things they did, is exactly what you're saying, Wes. They would take these songs, these very well-known boleros, and they would just make them their own with these very almost rubato, which means uh, there's no rhythm, Uh, kind of like they would manipulate the song in such a way to make you feel the lyrics and feel the melody that much more. They were amazing at what they did. Um, And yeah, and it's just, it is is hard to believe this is the same song, but it is the same exact song, three different ways. Yeah, yeah. And just their, I mean, their vocal harmonies were beautiful. Um, That's, yeah. It's, it has the same vibe, you know, all the way through. It just is a very comforting song, no matter how you hear it from through all these versions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I mean, my shameless plug for Los Panchos. Everyone listened to Los Panchos. They were masters. They had different personnel come in and out, uh, but they were always just tremendous. And they were extremely famous throughout Mexico and all of Latin America. Um, in my house, we had them playing pretty much all the time. Uh, if it wasn't Luther Vandross, it was Los Panchos or Tower Power. You know, it was all these different things, but Los Panchos was constant. Um, beautiful music. Uh, and and yeah, just another way of interpreting and seeing how the, these one compositions can become so much more than just songs. They become rooted in so many different people's lives in so many ways that they, that they cease to be just one thing. They become many things all rooted in this one kind of connective thread that connects so many different regions and lands and people and cultures in this very beautiful, chaotic way. I just, I love talking about this kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Music's just constantly evolving. It just always has been. And, uh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Wes. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I liked it. And now we'll hear from Alex Dolvin, our project advisor talking about El Coco. Okay, so here we have Alex. Man, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being part of this really cool community songs episode. We're going to talk about some music today. Absolutely. That sounds great. Great. So what we're going to talk about today, right now, is a song called El Coco. So El Coco is one of the oldest Son Jarocho songs in the Son Jarocho repertoire. So Son Jarocho, for all of those who aren't familiar, is a folkloric Mexican music, specifically from Veracruz, Mexico. And it's a beautiful type of music because you can very much see this confluence of the European, the African, and the indigenous all in one type of music, right? Even a Mexican myself, sometimes growing up, there was not a lot of acknowledgement of the African presence in Mexico during the colonial era. Um, I think even my Mexican friends, there was disbelief that there were even Africans in Mexico, right? But the fact is the Africans, individuals that were taken forcefully out of the continent and by the Europeans forced into the new world, into all these different places in the new world, very much in what we now recognize as Latin America, that includes Mexico, being a port city, saw a lot of this influx 
of these individuals forcefully removed from their homeland, forced to come to the new world, they went through Veracruz. And a lot of this, uh, a lot of the remnants of this movement can be found in the cuisine there, but also very much in the music. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, so why don't we just get right into it? I'll just play you some music, Alex, and you can tell me what you think. All right. Sounds great. Okay, Alex, what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of being from a music production background, that's kind of where my mind was drawn, thinking about the arrangement and everything. Um, I was, I mean, at first really curious what the, what that instrument, the, the pizzicato kind of um, string instrument almost sounds like something being played really high up on, on, on the frets or something. Um, that that's kind of what drew my attention and not something I hear a lot in music that I listen to. So, well, it's a harp. It's a harp. Oh my God. It's a harp, but it's a specific harp. It's a harp. Yeah. And he's way high up on the harp. And so the cool thing about the harp in this type of music is they're playing the melody and usually they're playing like a bass line with their, I mean, if they're a righty with their left hand, they're playing the bass line on the low end of the harp and with their right hand, they're playing these melody lines uh leading the music a lot in the uh in the really really high upper registers and it really really cuts it's amazing usually in in pop music right the the vocals is what what cuts but in this in this recording anyway that that is the thing that really cut through the mix so that's really cool and the other instruments that we're hearing is a requinto which is like a kind of it's like a tiny instrument and it's specifically played really close to the bridge, really close uh, with the plectrum, with the pick, really close to the bridge. And that's how you get that really, really percussive sound that they use. Um, playing what musicians call ostinatos, which are just, uh, they're very repeated specific lines that provide all this rhythmic momentum to the music. And then we also have the harana, which is providing a lot of the harmonic and rhythmic support in the strumming. And one of the things I find so interesting is with this type of music, and especially with this song, El Coco, there have been musicologists like Robin Sakalik points to the melodies as having remnants of African bell patterns from Togo. So it's, I mean, even just in the melody, it's referencing a lot of this. I know that you come from a music production and mixing kind of background. Uh, or actually, could you tell the people a little bit about what that means? So what does it mean to come from a kind of a music production background? How are you listening? Oh yeah, I'm so you know back in high school I started um, I had my own band and I started learning recording engineering, which is basically you know putting mics in front of instruments and then recording things into the computer and then mixing it. Um, so I kind of self-taught all that stuff, and then when I got to college, I started taking classes on that more formally. So basically, learning how to be uh, a tech in the studio in a recording studio. So you know, having mixed a lot of, of different songs for myself and other people, um, my my ear is always tuned to where instruments are placed, for example, in the stereo field, so between the left and right ear, or, you know, how compressed they are or how much they stand out in the mix. Um, just simple things like like that is, is kind of what stands out to me. Well, and so for everyone who's not familiar with, uh, there's a lot of like music industry lingo here, right? So for example, mix, when Alex is talking about mix, it's, it's, he's actually referring to the relative highness or lowness of volume between the instruments. So when we listen to, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong or, or you know, jump in at any point, but when we listen to music nowadays, everything tends to be very much controlled. When the voice needs to be heard, the voice comes up. When the guitars need to be heard or whatever, the vo the guitars come up or come down. With this type of music and the way it's recorded, the voices have to project over the instruments. So what Alex is talking about is listening to where all the instruments are in relation to each other 
specifically with reference to volume. And in the studio, you can manipulate all this, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I appreciate you um, uh, rephrasing that because I, I do tend to jump into the lingo there. So yeah, that was, that was great. And with a lot of these folkloric musics, this is part of the mastery that's requi- required, right? So if you're a vocalist, not only, let's say you're playing tonarocho music, not only do you have to be heard over this just really percussive blaring requinto, the strumming guitar playing really, really loud, but also this huge harp and this guy way, way, way up high, your voice needs to project and cut through all of that. And that's what we hear these musicians doing. It's, it takes a tremendous amount of, of mastery to be able to do this and have everything sound good, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I almost think about your, with this kind of music, I mean, they're, they're mixing things live. I mean, we're talking about mixing is like, nowadays it's people in the computer kind of, you know, you've seen the images of people moving faders, like um, volume knobs up and down, right? Mm-hmm. And the way this music was made, obviously, that there wasn't that. It, it was like they had to make this live and make it sound, all the relative volumes of each piece um, sound the way that they wanted to. So that kind of comes through in this recording. That's really interesting. Absolutely. And, and one quick note, too, before we move on. So you mentioned the lyrics. So the lyrics for this song are kind of interesting because they're kind of confusing. So el coco is a type of bird that can be found in the Veracruz area. And not only is it a beautiful bird, but it's also delicious, like people eat it. So, and that's what some of the lyrics are talking about here. But there's also a coco, which is a monster, like a boogeyman in Mexican, but also Iberian folklore and myth. So this is one of these songs that as we'll see over the course of this small uh, segment on El Coco, this song started one way, has become kind of like a theme that many musicians then take and become inspired by and use as a jumping off point to add their own flair, their own musical influences, and even write their own lyrics. So as we're gonna see right now and we're gonna hear, the co- El Coco is much more than just a composition or a song, it's like a vibe and an idea and everyone puts in their own little thing. So some versions are gonna talk about the boogeyman. Some versions are gonna be talking about uh, the bird and how they like to eat it. Another version is gonna talk about as we're gonna hear um, a siren that a siren like uh, um, someone like a mermaid who lives kind of close to the water under a bridge as the as the lyrics are saying. And so it's, it's like this, kind of meta vibe that these musicians over hundreds of years are kind of playing with constantly, continuously making new versions of the same theme of the same aesthetic. Crazy, right? Yeah. So why don't we move in to the next version? Okay, what do you think about that one? I mean, I, I really I loved it, um, and it was it was cool. It was cool to hear that the evolutions on that original concept, um, but also obviously the the similarities stood out a lot. I want to ask you: Did you hear any differences in the instruments, perhaps? Oh yeah, I mean, I heard some percussion in this one, so I, I thought that was interesting. In the last one, there wasn't really like a. a a drum beat necessarily and this one had the the kind of claps and things in there um so that's something that stood out to me right away what a great ear okay so this is from a live recording of a video and in the video it's uh musicians playing with someone doing zapateado which is on a tarima which is on a wooden board um it's like kind of like tap dancing but in this tradition dancing is actually percussive it's part and an integral part of the music. So that's where you you picked up immediately. The other thing is in the first version, we heard requinto, jarana, and, and harp, just three, and voices, of course. In this one, we have a dancer. We have what sounds like a guitarron, a really low kind of bass-like instrument. We have uh, what seems to be something like 
a guitarra de golpe or like a normal guitar, like a normal six string. And then we also have like a requinto type instrument kind of playing similar lines that we heard in the first one. The interesting thing is this kind of setup and these sounds actually are closer to the mariachi and the instruments used in mariachi than they are to son jarocho. So already we have a blending of many different types of folkloric Mexican musics of which there exists many, 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 many different types of things. And exactly like you're saying, Alex, all under this same umbrella vibe theme of El Coco. They're using the main melody of El Coco, the main melodic line and vocal line, as well as the uh, the re the refrain, the repeating Coco that they're using throughout. Yeah. So constantly moving. What did you think of the uh, of the mixes this time and how the musicians were? Because this is a live recording. So uh, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, everything... Every, it felt closer to like radio friendly recording how how something would be recorded today where you know the the vocals definitely cut through everything there was a bass frequency there was drums in there so it was just a lot more you know traditional pop type mixing what a cool way i'm loving the way that you're analyzing everything just in terms of like completely there's not so much cultural background you just get to enjoy the frequencies and where everything is sitting in relation to each other frequency wise how cool this is just it's interesting hearing you talk <laughs> about this because i'm coming from the opposite yeah. you know from the like the music cultural side and you're coming from almost like the mathematic like <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i love hearing about you know learning about it right now in real time it, it's really cool and adds adds a whole new dimension to my appreciation of the music. Great, great. Well, yeah, keep uh, let's let's keep uh, tag teaming this because I always try to give people as many different ways to appreciate the music as you can, right? So you can appreciate it uh, technically. So if you want to get into the techniques that the requinto player is doing to be able to get the kinds of sounds out of the instrument, that's one way of appreciating it. It's very much an art to be able to do what Alex is doing right now and appreciate how sounds can blend with one another and how to manipulate the attention of the ear, right? In real time, which is everything that sound engineers do. Um, and then of course, there's the cultural appreciation, knowing all the meaning behind the songs and everything uh, and many more. I'm very much appreciating this conversation because I'm learning from you, Alex. Awesome, likewise. So let's go to the last one really quickly. So this is gonna be, perhaps the farthest away from the first version. Let's see if we can pick out uh, some of the instruments that are being played. And then Alex, I'm very interested to see how you're hearing all these, because there's way more sounds now in this last version. So let's, let's get into it. Okay, what'd you think? Wow, uh, I, a lot of different things on that one. Um, the first thing was there's a lot of layers on this track, but also compared to the other two, the, they're not afraid to pull them back and bring them back in, right? So here we have multiple vocalists and they're you know adding different layers in the vocal department too. And obviously the percussion, um, there's so many elements to that as well. So those are the kind of things that, that stood out to me this time. And, and I'm also, I'm curious what the difference is lyrically again. So one of the things I love about this version is we have a lot of instruments, exactly as you're saying. What we're hearing is the jawbone of a donkey. Quijada, that's that. That's, that's what that is. So that's actually the teeth rattling in the jawbone. And you can scrape the teeth. So it sounds like a rasp, like a weedle. And then you can hit the jawbone uh, you hold it by the front of the jawbone, dried out, of course, and then it, it rattles that way. And that's part of the percussion. That's that grr, grr, chica, 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 grr, grr. That's that sound. We also have congas that are originally from the island of Cuba and used in many different Caribbean and Latin musics. And we also have this really low, thumpy sound, thumpy percussion. That's actually a cajon from, Afro from the Afro-Peruvian tradition. So we have... All of these different traditions all in one. I've kind of made my life's work studying all these different types of Latin music. It's just such a beautiful thing to have 
in such cohesion, all of these different cultural elements in one song. Lyrically, it's moving away from the traditional lyrics, creating almost this like impressionist mosaic of the port, right? So not only would you have the bird, but you would also have these ships coming into the port. You would have these different puentes and bridges and underways that the water would filter in through from. And you're they're kind of with their lyrics creating this image. So it isn't just about el coco anymore. It's about everything that the coco inhabits and, and the vibe that the coco uh, is in this region of the world, right? So it's more of kind of like a snapshot on this theme as opposed just to the initial. So it's just, it's gone so far from the original, you know? Yeah, but it's so interesting that now you're saying that I'm seeing like all three versions are grounded in geography in a, in a place. And it's it, that that's really interesting. Like the second one was about kind of the, the naval coastal um, aspects, even though it wasn't about the, the bird anymore. And that's one of the interesting things about these folkloric musics and perhaps why <clears throat> in many different folkloric musics, there's such this... A lot of musicians find these fountains of inspiration in these folkloric musics because these musics are rooted very much in places and in people, but more than anything in lived experiences. So when you when you look at these lyrics, it's again, it's like these impressionist lyrics, but what they're really imparting is a lived experience, right? What is it like to live in these places? What are some of the things you would see, smell, uh, feel, and this comes out in this type of writing, all under this umbrella theme of El Coco. Um, and again, to reiterate, there's also different versions and takes on El Coco, right? So you have, again, like all these different, all these different ideas connected to this one theme, right? I, I just find it fascinating. So that was it. Thanks so much, Alex. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your, your insights and your expertise with uh, sound engineering, because I think that really gave our listeners a you know, it's expanding toolkits to be able to appreciate music. And I, I appreciate that very much as an educator and also as a musician. Cool. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was really fun. I mean, going into these totally blind, having not heard um, any version of this song, um, it, it was really cool and, and hearing the background on it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think it's part of the the fun in experiencing musics that you aren't familiar with is this kind of like process of discovery, you know, analyzing, kind of putting on your detective hat, trying to figure out how everything is working, trying to figure out how everything is working in relation to something else and what these cultural contexts behind everything in the music can be. We can do this with Korean pottery music. We can do this with any number of African, like Sukus music. We could do this with Bollywood, anything, Carnatic music, whatever, you know, it, it's, it's more of kind of like a being curious and, and uh, being engaged and having fun with learning about things that you don't know. And it can be that way for music, huh? Yeah, definitely. Next, we'll hear from our Director of Marketing and Communications, Zoe Broussard, exploring Perfume de Gardenias. Okay, Zoe. So thank you so much for being a part of this Community Songs special episode. So you really wanted to talk about Perfume they got it then, yes. Could you tell me why? What what uh, kind of jumped out at you? I thought the name sounded really beautiful. I don't speak very much Spanish, but I can kind of make up that the word perfume kind of is referring to the scent, a sweet smell, and then gardenia is referring to gardens or plants, both of which I am very interested in. So I'm excited to hear, you know, more about what this means and why it was significant to someone. Great. Okay, perfect. So for anyone who's not familiar, this song is a really, really... It's kind of one of those really romantic, popular songs that you hear. There's many, many different versions. The first version was actually written circa 1930. So it's been around for a long time. So why don't we go ahead and we'll listen to first the Sonora Santanera version. Okay, Zoe, so what'd you think? 
it felt very romantic. It felt like a main character in a romance movie walking through a market or a garden or something very humble. I was very um, cognizant, too, of the accompaniment in the background. I really liked the instrumental as well. It seemed like it was very moving. Yeah, so so this kind of music is something that's very kind of ubiquitous uh, in what I call pan-Latin American culture, right? So pan-Latin American has to do with elements of art and culture and food and ideology that kind of run through many different cultures in Latin America, many different nations and societies. So bolero is a type of music, it's a genre of music that originates in the way that we're listening to it in this music here. It originates actually in the Caribbean, but it's become so, so popular all across Latin America and really the world, right? And there's, there's lots of bolero even here in the United States that's been very influential in music here in the United States. And I think your, your reflection is spot on. This is very much romantic music, right? This is music that is very much about love and actually what the lyrics are saying, I'll read a few of them now. Um, they're talking about, basically it's, it's someone professing what this other person is to to that to the first person right so uh, perfume de gardenias tiene tu boca bellísimos destellos de luz en tu mirar like the actual flower gardenias the flowering plant uh, is what your mouth has beautiful flashes of light in your eyes right so this is just like love song a million level one million right so this is this is what this is and the version that we listened to was a version by the great Mexican orchestra Sonora Santanera that was founded in the 1950s. So again, we have a Mexican orchestra doing Caribbean music, but in a very Mexican way, right? In a very, that that's a Mexican orchestra. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read you just an excerpt of the, the original uh, composer and writer of this song, who is actually an Afro-Puerto Rican by the name of Rafael Hernandez. So this is a wonderful article that we're going to make public uh, so everyone can read it. All you listening, uh, you can read this article as well. It's an article by Elena Martinez. So Rafael Hernandez was born October 24th, 1891 in Puerto Rico to parents who were of Afro-Puerto Rican descent and they were tobacco workers. He was one of four children uh, and he learned cornet, trombone, Bombardino, which was kind of like a little bit higher than a tuba, guitar, violin, and piano. Now, the interesting part is around 1915, a Japanese circus, the Kawamura Brothers, passed through Hernandez's hometown. And the owner heard of Hernandez's musical abilities and hired him to tour. That was actually Hernandez's beginning in music with the Japanese circus that was touring Puerto Rico. And from there, that's how his career, he toured the island. And then after that, he kind of left the island and he started uh, writing songs. He would become one of the most prolific writers of Caribbean music of this genre that we just listened to called Bolero and also of another Caribbean genre coming from Cuba called Huaracha. So already we have a Mexican orchestra playing Caribbean music by an Afro-Puerto Rican composer who got his start with the Japanese orchestra or Japanese circus. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's that's amazing. So what I'd like to do now is show you a different version. I'm going to show you a different version in a different genre. So we heard bolero, kind of like big band bolero. Now what I want to do is I'm going to show you a mariachi version of the same song. And I want to see what you think. Perfume de gardenia Tiene tu boca Bellísimos destellos de luz en tu mirar Tu risa es una rima De alegres notas se mueven tus cabellos So compared to the first one, I felt a lot more of the emotion of the piece. The first one, it felt very lighthearted and romantic, but this one, I felt the yearning through the violins. They had a lot more of a voice. Interesting. Okay, so the violins are speaking to you. Was there anything about the vocal interpretation 
that made you feel a little bit more in this one? Yeah, I think another reason why I felt that a lot of it was more emotional is the use of vibrato in his voice. It was mm. really compelling in this specific, you know, take of the song. So vibrato, for anyone who's not familiar, vibrato is that effect that that singers can use in their voice. Really, really good singers can turn it off and turn it on whenever they need to. But it's it's the difference between a straight tone uh and kind of almost like a wavy tone uh that kind of thing so that's vibrato and zoe what you're saying is you're saying when you hear that it really makes you feel the emotion of the song yeah it's a lot more intense wow okay so that's also speaking a little bit to this type of music right so again javier javier solis was a mariachi and in the mariachi traditions especially popular mariachi genres Part of the vocal interpretation is these very lamentive, expressive techniques that they use to make the music just really get to you right in your heart. Uh, and I think that's on 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 display here in this version with Javier Solis. Um, he was a tremendous talent and he actually died when he was very early in his 30s. Um, just such a terrible story that Mexico lost such a tremendous singer. Um, but he's incredibly, incredibly famous. He was also an actor out of Mexico. So this was an example of Mexican bolero or something we can call Mexican bolero, right? So far, Zoe, what are you seeing in terms of orchestration um, between the two songs so far? Specifically, is there anything in terms of the way the music has been orchestrated and arranged that you prefer? So I know you were talking about the violins and you were talking about the vibrato, but does one maybe turn you off or does one kind of like uh, really not do it for you of the two so far? Of the two so far, I think me coming from a background in orchestra as a cello player, I'm definitely more you know geared towards the version that emphasizes the violins. And also I noticed you know a lot of the wind instruments making, you know, a big name for themselves as well. But I really love the sound of a violin and I could hear the pizzicato of the cello, the plucking. Um, I would say the second version was very good for me. The first version wasn't bad. It was just a different interpretation. Exactly. And it, I find this so interesting that based on our own experiences, we can have these very instant visceral reactions to things, right? So it's so interesting that you have this rich background in orchestral music and you're able to pick up the little techniques that are happening on the violins and this allows you to relate so deeply with it whereas for me a percussionist even though i love 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 the javier solis version i love that there's a huge band for the first one the sonora santanera version that's one of the first things you hear that's the instrument that i play so when i hear that i perk up you know so it's it's very very interesting how these experiences that we have in our own personal lives can uh can have an effect on the way that the music hits us and re and we relate with the music. How long did you how long did you play uh you said you were a, a violinist? I was a cellist. Well, I, both statements are actually true. I was a violinist for the first 5 years that I was in the orchestra, then I switched to the cello um in middle school. Wow. And what kind of music did you play? I did a lot of classical music. Um I had a very strong penchant for um music that was from the baroque period. I think anything that allowed the cello to have not necessarily a, like a strong voice, but like that oomph factor, yeah. I really enjoyed those. But one other thing I wanted to say about the Javier Solis version of the song was that I found myself swaying from side to side as I was listening to it. Um, more so the second version than the first. And I'm not sure why. I think the first I was still kind of getting used to the melody, but after I've already became familiar with it, I found myself swaying. I think the violins were a big part of it, but the his voice was just so much more amplified in the second one that I noticed. He also had a tremendous voice though. Tremendous. It's kind of like a one, one in a million voice Javier Solis had. I mean, it, it's... Some of those really, really big bel, bel canto notes that he that he sings. Bel canto uh, actually comes out. It's a term that comes out of Italian opera, and it refers to when a singer is using their full voice to produce these huge, huge, huge notes that actually were meant to be heard at the back of the opera hall. 
This was before amplification was a thing. So singers had to come up with these techniques to be able to produce sound that would be heard at the end of a concert hall and a concert hall that can house, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. So they developed these really, really big, big, big voices. And the mariachi tradition really absorbed that. And a lot of the best, most uh, influential mariachi singers, we can say, developed these really, really, really big voices. Uh, and even today, when you go see mariachi perform live, you can see and hear just just the the visceralness, right? Like the physicality that's that's required to sing that kind of music. It's very, very, very impressive. It's very interesting that you picked up on that. Yeah, and it's especially important, you know, when you're playing with these big orchestras to have a voice that, you know, makes up for the fact that it's a single person compared to many instruments. Exactly, exactly. So now what we're going to do we're actually going to pivot directly away from big, big, big voices. And we're going to go to perhaps the most recently recorded version of the three that we're going to talk about today of the song Perfuma de Gardenias. And it's a wonderful version by perhaps one of my favorite singers, Ibrahim Ferrer, who is a singer, was a singer. He's passed. He was from Cuba and he made a name for himself singing first with uh Pachito Alonso and, and many, many other bands in Cuba, but then became really famous worldwide singing with the Buena Vista Social Club in the early 2000s. So this version is going to feature Ibrahim Ferrer singing Perfume de Gardenias. Perfume de Gardenia Tiene tu boca Bellísimos destellos de luz en tu mirar. Tu risa es una rima. This one, I another stark contrast from the prior in that it was very. It felt like a ballroom dance. It felt mm. very smooth. Um, I also really liked the bass, the way it was kind of trudging along, carrying the entire song. Um, there are just a lot of small elements that I picked up on. This one is, I have to admit, this one is my favorite, mainly because I, I love, like I said before, I love Ibrahim. There's a certain vulnerability in Ibrahim's voice that I think lends itself so beautifully to this genre. Right, so the bass that you're talking about, that's a typical bolero bass, boom, 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 this kind of thing. The orchestration and the arrangement is very much in the, um, I would say like jazz bolero feeling, right? Uh, jazz bolero sound. And what's interesting is this genre actually developed from Cuban musicians listening to jazz singers and crooners uh, circa 1940. And what they called it was feeling. Like they would feel, you know, the crooners, they would make you feel all this stuff. So in Spanish, it's spelled F-I-L-I-N, feeling, feeling, you know, like with a Spanish accent, you know. Um, and they were very, very conscious and mimicking a lot of these sounds that they heard the big ballroom orchestras using. And they put that into the orchestrations of the boleros. So even when we, when you hear uh, people like Benny More, one of the most prolific Cuban singers, when he would sing songs like Sabor a Mi, which is another beautiful boleto, you would have a lot of these elements from American music, uh, United States music in this kind of bolero. Um, it's, it has a, a lot of jazz influences that you can hear straight on, like the guitar and uh, like you said, the bass and all these different elements that just create such an ambiance. Yeah, song, I'm not surprised at all that there are influences from the jazz genre because part of me almost wanted to suggest that it was kind of like a toned down smooth jazz Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what's, what kind of pointed you in that direction? I would say the piano, the way the piano kind of held on to certain notes. Um, I could tell kind of the tempo changed a little bit from the initial two that we listened to. And yeah. of course the bass, I think the bass is one of the strongest elements of jazz or at least to the, you know, to identify it on my end. That's very interesting. Very, very, it's always fascinating. Like I said before, how people can pick up because we all have different perspectives based on our own individual experiences and, and memories, 
and the music that we have grown up to and listen to currently. So every time I have conversations like this with somebody, it's fascinating to see where people and what things are they're hearing that I'm not even, you know, really perhaps paying attention to. Um, it's just fascinating. So of the three, which was your favorite? Oh, why? man. Hmm. I would say if I had to rank them, I would say the version by Javier Solis would be number one. Mm. Um, the most recent one by Ibrahim, I think was his name. Yes. Yeah, I say that's my second favorite. And then the first, I would say, is my my least favorite of the three. But it's still a beautiful song. You can't really go wrong with this type of melody. I completely agree, right? Favorite, least favorite means nothing because they're all beautiful. And that's a, <laughs> that's a beautiful uh, predicament to be in, I think. Definitely. I hadn't really, you know, looked into the genre too much. Um, but from what I've heard today, I definitely would like to hear more from um, Javier Solis and then also from Ibrahim. Nice. Cool. So we have we have people interested. Cecily converted me. <laughs> yes. Yes. That That is a win for me only because I'm sharing amazing music by amazing musicians. And that is definitely a win and warms my heart. For everyone listening, we're going to be posting and sharing all of this music in the form of a playlist, a Spotify playlist. So if you want to hear these songs in their entirety, be sure to check out the Spotify playlist. And always, if you want to reach out to us, send us an email and we're happy to point you in directions that will allow you to explore these artists and these genres of music as much as you want. Thank you so much, Zoe. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. This was definitely very eye-opening. Okay, so those are all the interviews. I had no idea how they were going to turn out, but I'm so happy with the way that they did. The whole idea was to let the music kind of take the lead in the conversations, allowing all of our own personal experiences and reflections to come to light. What do you think, Elizabeth? How did you like it? It's just lovely. And I, I think it's such an interesting approach that you take, letting the music take the lead, letting the people you are interviewing find their contexts, find the, their their connections with the music. And I just thought it brought up such an amazing variety of ideas and concepts. And, and even for me, sometimes questions about, you know, what is this thing we call music? <laughs> what is it actually doing? I, you know, for instance, with, with Wes, talking about La Paloma, at one point, Wes says, it's hard to believe it's the same song. It's, it's after you've played him the second or third version, you know. Just this, this question of, uh, well, is it the same song when it's covered by different artists and has such a different affect? For me, of course, the questions are always complicated, right? But I would argue yes, because that's where the beauty is. The beauty is in being able to recognize that something can have all these different versions but still be the same thing and what that speaks to for me is how people being people just being human make things their own they make homes their own they make places their homes they make music their own they make food their own because they're just constantly doing what people do which is they imbue things with meaning and for all of these different versions you have all these different you could say arrangements instruments, all these different things, but really it's meaning because it reflects who they are and their own lived experiences. And for me, that's the beauty of all of these versions of these three songs. We have all different versions of just three songs, but they're all so different. And that to me is fascinating and beautiful and meaningful and amazing. Yeah. And and the and through it all the music is is this thread of connection you know between versions of songs sure but also between generations between people uh and just the the different way that each uh interviewee heard what they were hearing and the, and the the different level on which they engaged with it i mean that that came out really strongly with your your chat with alex because alex has this really powerful background as as a a sound producer, someone who deals with recorded sound a lot, lot, lot. And that comes out so strongly in his interview and the, the way he reacts to it and the things he talks about. It's like, yeah, here we are again. It's it's a different song for him than it is for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it just, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have these conversations with people of such different backgrounds, because I knew that everyone was going to have these different ways of listening. And hopefully what they were going to do is present these different ways of listening as a way for other people to listen differently. 
deepen their appreciation of other musics that they're already familiar with. That's right. And and maybe they'll go to our playlist on Spotify <laughs> to explore different ways to hear what, uh, you know, songs that maybe they thought they knew very well. Um, and, and, you know, I think the your interview with Zoe, it, it closes this little cycle of three interviews so nicely because Zoe just goes right for the heart of the matter and, you know, talks about the romantic feelings that come up with this incredibly romantic song and 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 just you know is like really there with those feelings and that they're not afraid to be sentimental and i find it really heartening i have to say when a relatively young person <laughs> is also not afraid to be sentimental and and not afraid to really say hey i like this romantic feeling in this music i mean you're talking to someone who whose guilty pleasure is bolero, so I cannot agree with you more. I think that, <laughs> you know, that that genre I can listen to all day, every day. I love it. And the fact that Zoe was able to listen to this song and just love the vibe, love the message behind the song and be able to, and I, even at the end, she says she's, she wants to explore it a little bit more. That to me just lit me up because I'm saying, yes, yes, more people are listening to bolero. I love it. It should be listened to. There's such works of art, and they speak a lot to what music has been for many, many people for many centuries, a way to express love, a way to have people feel things through the music that are also being transmitted through the lyrics, right? Because when they are put together, then you you get close to what it feels like in real life, I think. Yeah, you do. You do. Well, it's a lovely note to end on. And uh, David, I want to thank you for putting this episode together in such a clever and multi-layered and thoughtful way. I have really enjoyed participating in it. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you to all of our uh, team members who shared their experiences, their memories, and their reflections with us. And thank you all listening to taking all of these stories and these songs and these reflections and listening to them and hopefully being inspired to listen to music in a different way and explore different musics that perhaps you weren't familiar with, or and if you were, to uh, listening to just a little bit more with us. Hear, hear. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Cio Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción Sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles Mi orgullo y mi pasión ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una ola, soy una onda Una vibración que ronda por el universo vivo Y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda